Words have meaning. Sometimes language can be difficult and be misunderstood. Commissioned in 1505 by Pope Julius II, Michelangelo was to make a statue of Moses, the biblical lawgiver. The statue can be found today in the Church of San Pietro in Rome, Italy. Although extremely detailed and really impressive beyond compare, the, the statue appears to be a great image of Moses seated with a serious assertiveness. And the crucial part, though, of the statue comes from two subtle details included on Moses' head. The detail that Michelangelo, Michelangelo, that guy, <laughs> whew, the detail that he included on his head were two horns. He sculpted Moses to have two horns on his head. Why? Because Jerome's translation, the Vulcate, interpreted the Hebrew word incorrectly. The Hebrew word used to mean radiant or shining is Koran, and it shares the same root word used for horns, which is Korin. In fact, in modern Hebrew, the word used to refer to a ray of sunshine is Korin, as if speaking of the sun's horns. So in a way, it's no wonder that when translating the Bible into Latin, Jerome described Moses' face as horned instead of radiant. And Michelangelo then took that translation and sculpted Moses, leading to this iconic motif that plenty of artists have noticed and represent this as misguided. Words have meaning. Language can be difficult. Sometimes we misunderstand. In 2013, a few months after my family and I arrived in Sweden, beginning to learn the language just a little bit, we were meeting with a Bible study that was already there, and our teammate Joe was just relaying a story from last week in the, to the Swedish friends there. And we're, we're listening in a little bit, and they're conversing with him in their, in their language, their heart language, Swedish. And Joe, who had been there for many years before, was fluent in describing that week, and he was describing him cleaning out the garage and, and in cleaning the garage, the back of the garage, he found a leak. But Joe, in describing this, couldn't recall the word for leak in Swedish. So he just said the English word. Yahar in leak in mit garage. And our Swedish friend's eyes became huge. They questioned him, you found a leak. Well, yeah, what did you do? And Joe experienced carpenter before the Lord brought him into missionary service said, I, I took care of it. And their eyes got even bigger. What do you mean you took care of it? And he's, he said, it's gone. I, I took care of the leak. I did this all the time in the U.S. I, I can take care of leaks. And at this point, the Swedish friends are just flabbergasted. You know, jaws on the ground at what he's saying. And they begin to drill down because this was significant. How did you take care of it? And where did it go? And Joe begins to realize, oh, there's, there's something missing here. And he says, leak, you know, I don't know the Swedish word, a hole. And they were relieved and began to laugh. Because leak, L-I-K in Swedish, means corpse. <laughs> a dead body. Joe, how was your week? Well, I found a dead body and I took care of it. <laughs> Words have meaning. Language can be difficult. I love sharing that story because it's not about me. Sometimes we misunderstand. 
Sometimes we have to ask more penetrating questions about what do you mean? As we come back to the Gospel of Luke, we come to a passage that's familiar. And as we see, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Jesus has spent the last half of the Gospel exposing the religious leaders and their plain refusal to understand and to acknowledge who Jesus is and why Jesus has come. And for quite some time, they have refused to answer this question, who Jesus is. And it's an important question to answer. Understanding who Jesus is and why he came is a life and death decision. Understanding words is crucial, especially when it's the words of Jesus. Understanding his words means we understand who he is and why he came. If we remember back a number of chapters, Jesus asked this crucial question to his own disciples. In Luke 9, verse 18 and 20, he says, Now it happened as they were praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that you're one of the prophets of old that arisen. And then he drills in, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. It's one thing to know what the crowd say, what the mob says, but it's another to answer this personally. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know who he was. He knew that this would change their life. Knowing who someone is and how you are to relate to them is vitally important. It changes things. So who do you say Jesus is? And that's the question this morning. Who's Jesus? Here's the main idea. Real, real short, real easy. The answer of who Jesus is determines the trajectory of your life. The answer of who Jesus is determines the trajectory of your life. And how you answer the question of who Jesus is determines the course that your life will take. If you're to spend a few weeks and I encourage you to do this, to get to know some of our older saints here in the church and ask them how their life has changed since they met Jesus, boy, you would be well served to spend time with them to find out how life is different before Jesus and then after Jesus. It's a vital question to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? And when we answer this question, we better understand a second question, who am I? So, that's my outline, real, real, real brief, okay? Two points. Who is Jesus? Who am I? If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn and, and, and have one open. We're going to be in the Bible this morning. There's Bibles located in the, in the seats in front of you. If you turn on those, if you're unfamiliar looking at the Bible, it's on page 830. And we encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to please take that as your own. If you're unfamiliar, even kids, you're not sure what a Bible looks like, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, that helps you to kind of follow along as we're going through God's Word. So we're in Luke 22. We left off a couple weeks ago in verse 62, so we're going to pick up in verse 63, and we're going to look at point number one, who is Jesus? When we left off in the Gospel a few weeks ago, we saw the scenes of Passover as Jesus explained what he's about to do, and then we saw Peter's rebuke, and then Jesus' prayer in the garden, and then Peter's denial, and then we left off in verse 62 as Jesus is being taken away by the soldiers. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, would have their own trial first, 
And before he's delivered to them, the soldiers would have their fun. Look at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Just brief, we, we see they decide to play a little game with Jesus. They blindfold him, take turns hitting him, and, and, and mock him. Since you're blindfolded, Jesus, tell us who hit you. They're taunting Jesus. He is alone now, all alone. His loneliness is now exaggerated by the darkness both of the night and by his blindfold. And they continue to blaspheme, to, to slander Jesus, to speak against him. And just so you know, all of this is to fulfill the words of the prophets. What we read in Isaiah. And the silent acceptance of this mistreatment is remarkable. I know this is brief, but what you need to take notice, Jesus is offering us, the church, a model of behavior when we're threatened by the world. When the world's authorities, because of our faith, come after us. He's, he's offering us a way to follow. How do you respond when you're mistreated? You snap back. You stand up, you're just gonna fight, you're gonna be like Peter. Does your response to mistreatment come close to that of Jesus here? I mean, think about how incredible that the Son of God, by whom all things were created, would stoop down to allow his creatures, his creation, to treat him this way. How majestic is Jesus in his suffering? This is remarkable. It's not done. Verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is the Sanhedrin. It's the council made up of 71 members that had supreme power over the Jewish faith. We're not sure if all 71 members were there late into the night, but it seems there were at least enough to have this, this trial. But the Romans retained the authority to overrule any decision taken by the Sanhedrin, in particular the right to impose a death penalty. And, but this trial needs to happen first. And they question, and Jesus answers. He says, I tell you, you will not believe Jesus, all-knowing, knows how they will respond. But then verse 69, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In both of Jesus' biblical allusions here, the Son of Man is from Daniel 7, and seated at the right hand is from Psalm 110. And Jesus is telling them that the Messiah comes as judge. And everybody in the room, everybody listening to Jesus, all the ruling council of the Sanhedrin, they knew about the Son of Man. They were looking for the Son of Man. They know Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming from the throne of God to earth and the clouds of heaven to judge the world. And they refuse to believe it to be true about him. And Jesus here is claiming again deity, and they're denying it. He is claiming to be the judge over the entire world. And here, 
he will be judged by the world. And yet they refuse to humble themselves to hear his words. Verse 70, so they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. You say that I am. Jesus isn't going to dance with them anymore. They have no desire to hear from Jesus, and he won't entertain in their games. Now, the religious leaders have a problem. They will find Jesus guilty, but they can do nothing about it. They need Roman rulers to agree to have Jesus killed. So, so they will come and say, look, this man is a political leader. He's coming for your power. He's coming for your position. You better take him out. And ironically, their execution of him would be the first step in the process of translating their prisoner to, the, to his seat at the right hand of the power of God. These religious leaders will usher in God's plan for all of humanity. And so now we scoot into chapter 23. Verse 1, then the whole company of them, these religious leaders, arose and brought him before, the, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is, is Christ, a king. At this point, the, the situation is just plain crazy. Here are the priests and the religious leaders demanding the execution of Jesus on the ground that he was attempting to overthrow the political authorities. But Rome cared not a whit for the religious scruples of other cultures. And so Jesus' enemies would have to accuse Jesus of a crime that Rome would find worthy of death. Death is the reason they are here. Death is the reason they stand behind before this governor. These very priests would, would, would not themselves bow to the political authorities. And what is more, they were upset with these political authorities and would have loved to remove these authorities. But now, right now, Jesus is more important. He, he, he's the target for them. See, they have to save their position, their prestige, their power in the temple. And so Jesus has to go. Their charges are three. He was a revolutionary. He was forbidding paying taxes, and he's claiming to be a king. And so what does the governor think? What does Pilate say? Verse three, Pilate asked him, are you? the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. We can imagine that Jesus standing there having been bound, blindfolded, beaten, sleep deprived, spit covered. He didn't look very regal at this time. And so Pilate's question really should be interpreted sarcastically. You, king, and here we have Jesus uh, again responding by not really responding. This is almost the, the same response we saw earlier in verse 70 at the end of 22. It's really a puzzling response. You have said so. And why did Jesus respond this way? Well, Pilate is not asking him, are you the Messiah? He's not asking him, are you the one to bring salvation? Are you from heaven? He doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe that he's that sort of king. No, he wants to know if Jesus has a political agenda. 
Are you, so, are you opposed to Caesar? Are you opposed to me? Are you coming for my power? Are you coming for my position? Where's your army? And th- this really was on the mind of everyone at this time. You know, if we skip ahead into Luke 24, with the two walking on the Emmaus Road, one of the disciples expresses tremendous disappointment of the death of Jesus. But why is there disappointment? Luke 24, 21 says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, we tend to spiritualize this word redeem, but that's not what they're saying here. They're saying, we are an oppressed people. We are under the yoke of the Romans. We want to be free politically. We want our nation back. We want our freedom, and we thought Jesus was the one who was coming to do that. And we wanted to be redeemed from Rome. To redeem means to be released from slavery. That's what the word means. And so everyone, the disciples even were, were asking this. Everyone's looking for this. This is the expectation. Political freedom. Redemption from Rome. And so the religious leaders are afraid that Jesus will unseat them from their position, from their power, from their leadership, and they, and they want him gone. The Roman rulers are afraid that Jesus wants more political power, more control and leadership. So they want him gone. And so Pilate is asking him, what's your political program? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers the same way in each of the gospel accounts. You have said so. You have said so. And man, I dove into the Greek this week to see, can I get some insight here on what's what's happening? What is Luke saying? You have said so. And it was no help whatsoever. What it says here is what he said. The the New American Standard translated as a positive, but they're wrong. Jesus doesn't affirm nor deny what Pilate says here. He simply says, you have said so. Jesus doesn't deny what is true. He just claimed to receive a kingdom from his father earlier in chapter 22, but he doesn't engage in pointless banter with someone who literally has no interest in God's truth. Jesus was a king, but not the king that would concern Pilate in his position. Jesus had zero interest in a worldly political kingdom established through power and force. This was not the kingdom he had come for. So he responds, you have said so. It's, it's neither a positive or a negative response. See, when someone says to you, are, are you this, and you say, well, that's, not, that's what you say about me, it sounds like a no. But is it really a no? So why is Jesus so ambiguous? I believe because it's not a fair question to ask, and Jesus won't be cornered. You, you and I might have faced these questions before. You know, if someone comes up to you and says, have you stopped stealing from your neighbor? How do you respond? How should you respond? If you've never stolen from your neighbor, you give them a direct answer, yes or no, you can mislead them. Yes, I've never stolen, or yes, I've stopped, but I've never stolen, or no, I've never. It's, it's a cornered question. Either way, it doesn't become clear what you've done because the question was there to set you up. 
And so Pilate is trying to corner him, and Jesus doesn't take the bait. He refuses to say yes or no. Why? Because Jesus has an absolutely unique approach to power. Jesus doesn't say yes, because if he had, then Pilate would assume that he's getting an army ready to to take power and to take over. But Jesus doesn't say no either, because that's not totally true. He is a king. Jesus didn't come to bring peace to people in their private life so that they could live any way they wanted. No, Jesus will have rightful rule over everyone. So in one sense, Jesus isn't political at all, at least how the world thinks of political power. But in a very different and yet real sense, Jesus is very political. He will have power and rule over his people. In fact, as we read in the Bible, every knee will bow to Jesus. Every knee. But that's not the way right now. That's not why he came in his first coming. It wasn't by force. As we read in Luke's gospel, when Jesus' first message, he came preaching the good news of the coming kingdom. He came in peace. But his second coming, friends, that will be a different story. He will come to judge. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. His second coming will be final. His second coming he will come to judge. So Jesus answers Pilate here, you have said so, and they have confessed him even if they don't believe it, and Jesus just lets it sit there. Verse four, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. See, Pilate hears this as a denial. Different people can hear opposite messages in the same words. This should give us some pause in our interactions in the world. Verse 5, and they were urgent. These are the religious leaders. They're urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And these these religious leaders won't let up now. They're they're putting pressure on Pilate. And then they they let it slip and mention Galilee. Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time for the Passover. This is Pilate's opportunity to get this off his desk. He wants to shove this onto Herod's desk. Pilate always wanted to wash him his hands of this. He didn't want any, any, any part of this whatsoever. Verse 8, he's now in Herod's presence. In verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus... What was his response? He was very glad, joyful, happy, giddy. He has Jesus in front of him. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. See, Luke tells us that Herod had been waiting to see Jesus. He's hoping for a little razzle-dazzle. He's heard the rumors. He, He wants to see it up close now. Jesus, come on, put a show on for me. Let's see something. Let's see some, some, some magic, some sleight of hand. See, it wasn't faith, but fascination that drove Herod. He wanted to be entertained. But Jesus doesn't play. He doesn't agree. Verse 9, he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. 
The chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. What we read here in, in, in really drilling down into the Greek, Herod takes the lead here and the soldiers join in. All three participles in the Greek text of verse 11 are singular, indicating Herod himself played the head mocker. Herod himself is the one driving this. He is the one that wants to make fun of Jesus here. This is the same Herod who, who liked the party. If you remember earlier, we mentioned this, and even in Mark's gospel, who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. He is the same one who's mocking Jesus now, arraying him with royal clothing, putting a, a crown on his head, other gospel writers say. And really, this exchange between Jesus and Herod is a fulfillment of Psalm 2 that we heard read earlier in the service. And how do we know this? In the prayer in Acts 4, the early Christians quote Psalm 2 and then acknowledge that Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentile and the people of Israel, were acting in fulfillment of God's promise from the Old Testament. And what we learn here at the very end of this section, Herod didn't care much for Pilate, but Luke says in verse 12, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been been at enmity with each other. The day that Jesus is going to be condemned, these friends, these two become buddies as they condemn the Son of Man. And in all of this, they still don't know Jesus. They don't really care. To him, he's just a man. He's just a character in their life, in their story. Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? See, the religious leaders refused to answer that question. They, they wouldn't listen. The Roman leaders are the same. They think Jesus is of no consequence. Who is Jesus? Second, who am I? We need to recognize here as we go through this section that there's unbelievable pressure on Pilate to the point that he believes his career is in jeopardy because the last thing that he could allow to happen was another insurrection. See, his, his job was on the line. That's how he views this situation. So verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. The Pilate figures that he will just whip him a bit and, and, and they will be satisfied. Just a little blood will satisfy their hunger. And, and even in this, it's a tiny bit of compromise. But as we learn, it won't satisfy them. He isn't simply announcing a, a judicial decision. No, he's beginning a debate now with his accusers. Just like the trial by the religious leaders, this trial is far from noble or right. And Pilate puts this plan before the angry crowd that he will release Jesus after he's been flogged. 
See, Pilate is not convinced that Jesus is guilty. In fact, I believe he is totally convinced that Jesus is innocent. He knows he's innocent. And Luke goes to great lengths to prove that to us. He says it three times in this passage. Now, if you look down your Bible, in the ESV, there is no verse 17. Because it's not listed with many of the best manuscripts. So they removed it. But there will be a prisoner release. And we know this happens because Matthew and Mark's gospel tell us of this. But in Luke's gospel, some of the best manuscripts don't include verse 17. So they pull it out. Matthew 27, 17, or 15 says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. See, the, the people... And the governor know that this custom to release a prisoner. But the people, they don't want this Jesus. They want another Jesus. I learned this week from early church historian and scholar Origen that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. So you have Jesus the Christ and Jesus Barabbas. Verse 18. They all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. And Pilate has before him now two Jesuses. And essentially the way this is going, Pilate is saying, which one do you want? Which Jesus would you like? One Jesus was guilty of insurrection and murder. He was a worldly revolutionary. He wanted to overthrow Rome. He wanted power, and he wanted to do it by force. Is this the man you want? Or the other Jesus? He was a revolutionary too, but a very different kind of revolution. He has power, but he lays it aside. He knows that forcing people to follow him won't bring the revolution in this world. Which Jesus do you want? Of course, the world says, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Which Jesus do you want? Which Jesus do you choose? Can you imagine what all of this was like for Barabbas? He's in prison. He deserves to be there. He was guilty of insurrection and murder. The penalty fits the crime. He should die for what he did. There was no dispute in it. He's sitting in prison, waiting to die. And not just any death. No, he will experience the most gruesome death. He doesn't know what's going on. Time has no meaning to him at this point. Will it be soon? Friends, imagine with me if you're able to step outside of yourself and step inside someone else and to see what they see, to hear what they hear, to feel what they feel. Imagine you are Barabbas. Verse 20, Pilate answered them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. You can hear the mob outside right now. They're crying out for me. 
those chants are about me. They know what I did. They want me dead. Crucify. Crucify him. Man, I know what comes next. I'm going to suffocate on a cross. I think about the nails as they are driven into my hands and feet. In just a few moments, they're going to walk me out. I'm going to see my family, my friends, my neighbors, and I will feel shame. Shame like I've never felt before. I know I'm guilty. Filled with pride and anger, I decided I was going to overthrow the government. I was going to do it. I I was going to do it by force. And now I, I will suffer. I will die. And I hear the chants, crucify. Verse 22, a third time, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Oh, therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. The voices won. The voices of the mob prevail. And the guard comes in to get you, Barabbas. But instead of placing the cross beam on your back, he unlocks the shackles and sets you free. Shock overwhelms you. Astonishment. How? And you see across the way, uh, the cross beam is placed on another man's back. And you think, who is this man? He has my cross. That's my cross beam. They told me this morning that when I woke up, I was going to die today. I was going to Golgotha. And why is this man taking my cross? He's going to die my death. Who is this man? They have the wrong man. Who is this one? And they release Barabbas. He's free. He steps out, breathes fresh air. He can go home. Hours earlier, he thought he was done. He goes home because he has a substitute. Someone takes his place. My mind flashes back to Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac head up the mountain. They both know what's going to happen. Abraham ties his son, pulls the knife, 
And the angel of the Lord stops him. And Abraham lifts up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Can you imagine the relief that Isaac would have felt in that moment? There was a substitute. That ram would die in his place. This is the gospel, friends. See, the story of Barabbas is a picture of the gospel for us personally. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Do you know why Jesus doesn't say anything? Why he allows the guards to take him, to place him on the cross? Do you know why he doesn't fight back? To allow them to, to... to lead him up the hill and to nail him to the cross because Jesus Christ was taking our punishment and he was acting the way a guilty person should act. He is saying, take me. Punish me. And he is being faithful to God, to his word and to us. And if you take that in, all the way in, you know who you are then. We are Barabbas. Who are you? Who am I? We are Barabbas. And Jesus didn't die for your sins in just a general way. He died for us specifically. What we read in 2 Corinthians 5 is not only did he take our sins, but we get his righteousness. And you and I are now treated as if you've never done these horrible things. And God accepts you and loves you as you are because of Jesus Christ. Now friends, that's revolutionary. And because of Jesus, because we know who he is and we know who we are, it changes everything. Your identity, your wealth, your citizenship, your race, your ethnicity, your culture, your class status, your politics, all of it changes because none of it is as important to you as Jesus Christ. And so we can live in this world and work a job and we don't have to find our purpose in that job. You can get married and have kids and you don't have to find your worth in those relationships. You can live in a new neighborhood and a nice home, but that doesn't have to define you. It doesn't show you who you really are. Your identity isn't in your money or your relationships or your home or your race. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. And if you're trying to save yourself, trying to earn your own self-esteem, trying to prove yourself, you'll either hate money and power or too much, you'll love them too much. For example, you may say you don't like money and power and and you, you don't like people that have money and power and staying away from them makes you feel noble. And in that case, you, you save yourself that way. 
Or perhaps instead you desperately need money and you need power and you need status. And so in that way you're trying to save yourself. And you may despise other kinds of self-salvation more than yours, but basically you're doing the same thing in a different way. You're trying to save yourself. But if you know you're a sinner, saved by sheer grace, then you can take money or you can leave it because you're free in him. If money or power comes, there's a lot of good that you can do for the glory of God. But if money and power starts to go, you know that's one of the ways the power of God's kingdom is going to work in your life. The world's power is exiting your life. The world, worldly compulsion is dissipating. You work, but your work does not define you. Your, your work is not driving you into the ground. And get this, you're going to be so content I mean, to the world, contentment from a Christian is so weird. It's just radical. I mean, the world looks at it and says, you're so reckless. People say, how can you spend your money like that? How, how can you give it away so freely? How can you let that career opportunity, this is monumental, how can you let that go? How can you be in, involved with such a needy person when all they do, when all they're going to do, just, they're going to take advantage of you. They're going to probably steal from you. How can you do that? How can you live this way? How can you live so radically? And the Christian responds, it's not the end of the world if someone takes advantage of me or if my money's gone or if my career doesn't develop as I might like it. I'm not controlled by that fear anymore. I don't live in that kingdom anymore. And you're replacing the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God. Because your life has been made new by Jesus Christ. You don't live for what the world lives for anymore. You live for him. Because when we understand who Jesus is, and we understand who we are, everything changes. Friends, you have to know who Jesus is. You have to answer that question. And you have to know who you are. Perhaps, friend, you came to this service or you've been coming for some time and you're not a Christian. You don't consider yourself that. You're just asking questions, getting to know things. Friend, this is the most important question you'll answer. Who is Jesus? Do you only think of him as a religious teacher? He, he was a teacher, but much more than that. Perhaps you think of him as just a really good prophet, but can a prophet forgive sins? There was no other that could do and say what Jesus did and, say, and said. And friend, I have to tell you, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you come into the service under the wrath of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Remember I told you, 
Christ's first coming was to preach the good news. But we have the promise that Christ is coming back. And friends, when he comes back, it'll be too late. He comes back to judge. And there's only one way to escape the wrath of a holy God, and that's for another to take the wrath in your place. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We, we cannot stand before God on our own. Because of our continued sin, we are all under the judgment unless another stands in our place. And that one is Jesus Christ. He came to take God's wrath, to take our punishment for our sins. He came as a perfect and willing substitute for us. He came to die in our place. And friend, if you came here today, you are always welcome to join us. But you need to understand that that God sent his son to take your place, to take away your sin and to give you Christ's righteousness. And the record of your wrongdoing is gone. See, we learn from this that you and I are Barabbas. We stand condemned. We hear the crowd chanting crucify and we know Deep down, we deserve death. But Jesus steps up innocent, perfectly taking our place, and he goes to the cross, and we go free. Well, if Barabbas is a picture of the individual condemned for his sins and in need of a substitute to take the punishment, then we are meant to see the crowd here as the natural enmity that all people have towards God. Listen, friends, when, when given a choice, this crowd between a known murderer to live among them rather than an innocent man, the Son of God, who do they choose? They choose the murderous insurrectionists. They choose Barabbas. And so when we see this crowd chanting, screaming out for Jesus to die, we should see ourselves in that crowd. Sinful human beings, you and me, are not neutral towards God. We are not indifferent. We are not objective or unbiased. We are all rebels against him, and Jesus is a threat to our way of life. He stands between us and our passionate commitment to our lives and the way that we want to live our lives. And so friends, I implore you to don't be too prideful here. If you were in that crowd, would you have chanted anything different? Would you have called for Jesus, the Son of God, to be released? Can you see yourself in the story? Can you see yourself in, the, in this picture? Even the last two two sections here, chapter 22 and 23. Do you see yourself? We're like Judas. We easily sell out our Lord to get a little extra money or power to move up in the world. We're like the chief priests. We want Jesus to surrender to our ways, to our plans for our life. And when he doesn't, we want him gone. We're like Peter. 
We have far too much pride in our own power to do it all by ourselves. And we'll deny the Lord when we're in trouble. That's why we don't pray and we don't read the word. Because we think we've got this. We're like Herod. We're, We're curious about Jesus because he's famous. Everyone's talking about him. But we get bored quickly with him when he doesn't bring all the satisfaction we hoped for. We're like Pilate. We see Jesus. He doesn't bother us too much. We're we're fine with letting him be. But when the crowd chants and chooses wickedness, we just fall right in line. And we're like the crowd. All whipped into a frenzy when the rights of our leaders are threatened. And we're eager to tear the whole thing down, regardless if Jesus or the church is hurt. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, we see ourselves in this picture. Were you there when they crucified our Lord? Friends, the answer is yes. We were there. There is no other answer. All of us are there. And all throughout the gospel, this gospel, we have seen time and again that salvation is not for good people, for people who think they can get there all by themselves. Salvation is for those who know that they can never get there. The worst of sinners. We know we need Jesus. Well, we need to close. Barabbas was a guy who wanted to destroy the system. He, wanted, he was the guy that the, the, wanted the leaders dead. He wanted them gone. He was the guy that was going to go after the leaders, the religious leaders, the, the Roman leaders. And so I begin to ask, why would they choose to release this man? Why would this even be an option? It's baffling, right? I mean, he's dangerous. He's proven he's dangerous, isn't he? I'm sure they think if if they let him out, he's probably going to start another revolution. He's probably going to start another riot. But they can contain him. They They can get Barabbas again. They can capture him again. They can place him behind guards, get armies together. Barabbas would be stopped. He would be killed. He's manageable. But how do you stop Jesus? How do you stop a man who has no army, who has no outward anger, no weapons, and who has shaken up the world? I mean, he was shaking up the world. They had to get rid of him. See, from their vantage point, he was unbeatable. Jesus is unmanageable. And so they get rid of Jesus, they say. Let's get rid of Jesus. We can always manage Barabbas. But this is our only chance to get rid of Jesus. We don't want him to rule over us. And so they will kill him. And they will bury him. And they believe they'll never hear from him again. 
Jesus of Nazareth will be gone. This will be done. And we can move on. What did Pilate get this day? Well, he got peace. He really wanted peace. You know, he, he does not want conflict. He wants out of the conflict. He got his job. He, he continued to be a governor. So he could keep pursuing, keep going up the ladder. He had security. He had a new friend, Herod. They're buddies now. They're going to share a Thanksgiving meal together. He and Herod are close. He received from the world what he wanted. Satisfaction. He gave the people what they wanted. Job well done. But Jesus wasn't done. Pilate may condemn him to death, but this was all in the plans of God. Friends, this was not an accident. This wasn't something that Jesus couldn't control. This is what God had planned. Jesus would fulfill the law and he would do what was humanly impossible. We're going to end our service by having the Lord's Supper together. If you haven't gotten your elements, I think there's some in the back. But I want to share a few words before we get there. So don't, don't open them up yet, okay? I'll tell you that Christ fulfilled the word of God. He fulfilled the word of God and the law of God by going to the cross and taking the penalty we deserve by our law breaking. See, there are two ways to fulfill the law. You either keep it or you pay the penalty for breaking it. Either way, the law is satisfied. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law once. Then he went to the cross and died and paid the penalty and fulfilled the law again. He took the curse of our law-breaking deserves so that we could get the blessing his law-keeping deserves. Because we could never keep or satisfy the law by ourselves. God made him who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So only when you look into the perfect law and see the only one who perfectly kept the law, only when you look into the word of God and see the only one who ever really truly did the word of God, will the word of God now be an everlasting encouragement. Because there is no despair. There's no condemnation. And you see the law differently now. Martin Luther wrote about this. He, he discovered this. Once he looked into the law and saw not just himself, but only the, the only one who ever fulfilled the law, he, he said this, I, I, now I want to keep the law to delight the one who did this for me, to resemble the one who did this for me, to please the one who did this for me, to know the one who did this for me. See, everything for, for Luther at that point changed because he understood who Jesus was. He understood who he was and what Christ had done for him. And his motivation for keeping the law changed. And therefore, the effectiveness of the, his law keeping changed. He began to feel the word of God as being a, a tonic, the word of God being a lamp to lead the way, a, a light for his feet. 
It was no longer an everlasting despair. It was no longer a terror to him. It was no longer a burden to him. It was life itself, and it brought freedom. It's all because of Christ. He was now free to live. And so we partake of this meal together as Christians, as a church family. 